So tonight we're going to talk about scoffers scoffing. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 3 deals with various scoffings, stuff that we actually hear still nowadays, and he actually deals with it biblically, and he deals with it with good philosophy. Um, and I don't mean something crazy complex. I'm just good philosophy is just thinking clearly. It's just clear thinking. And that's what he does. He's, he's a first-rate philosopher, really, Paul is, um, by God's wisdom given to him. And so he handles the scoffers here. He answers questions like, well, why even bother being a Jew if the law just condemns you? Um, also, this one that we would get nowadays, is God unjust to inflict wrath? On the basis of the fact that my evil gives God a chance to show his righteousness when he judges me. So really, I'm doing the Lord's work when I sin. That's, that's really, that's the, the scoffing attack that comes here at the Bible. Um, but we hear this kind of stuff today. And so I'm excited about this because we get to see how the Bible answers the scoffers. Interesting stuff. And, um, and what we're doing uh, Sunday nights right now is we're going through the book of Romans. This is a verse-by-verse study. Our idea is not only to get the main point of the passage, but as we plod through, my, my method is to get each point of the passage. So in getting each point of the passage, you can sometimes lose the main point I'm trying not to do that. I try to remind us of the main point. And what the main point is, is that uh, Paul the Apostle is trying to reveal to everyone, everyone has sinned. This is the beginning of the gospel message. The wrath of God has been revealed through the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. And he gets into great detail of what those things are. And then he responds to the Jews, telling the Jews, you too, even though you have the law, you still are condemned because you don't obey the law. So then there's this natural question in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Here it is. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit, or what is the profit of circumcision? I could see how the Jewish person would think this. Well, I'm Jewish, but you're telling me the law doesn't save me. Well, then what's the point? I'm laboring under all these rules. I'm living a much more strict life than my neighbors, a much godlier life than the Gentiles. What's the point of all these things? Why should I even bother? How is this a blessing? Um, Now, modern people, sometimes they echo this. They sort of agree with this, even modern Christians. They'll say things like, boy, I'm sure I'm glad I'm not under the old covenant. Like, as though it were a bad thing and not a good thing. And sometimes we miss the point of the old covenant and the Old Testament and the the law given through Moses. We, We miss it and it actually makes us look a little silly when people start asking us about it and we don't understand how the Old Testament fits in with the full revelation of God's word. And so it's just good news to get the full story. It really is. Um, I, have, I have actually two studies on, uh, on the YouTube channel called um, How to Understand the Old Testament. And the one part is how you would understand it from a Jewish perspective, and the second one is from a New Testament perspective. And I recommend that if you haven't gotten into that before. So then what's the profit of circumcision? Verse 2, Paul answers the question. Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. This is the truth. There's a ton of good stuff that comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament's great. It really is fantastic. The law itself, it preserves. And those who attack the Old Testament law usually just cherry pick little pieces out of context, twist it, and then throw it in your face. Like, oh, well, you think we should do this and do this because of the law? And then the Christian goes, well, we're not under the law. Instead of saying, that's not how it works. Like, <laughs> It's not just that we're not under it. They're not even representing it correctly in the first place. And so we, we want to we see things. Like, for instance, in the law, there was medical protection for the Jewish people. When the bubonic plague 
hit Europe, it affected Jews at a way lower rate than it affected other groups of people because they were following the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament because God had them basically wash with soap all the time. And something we do nowadays without even thinking about it. You know, if you go to a bathroom and you don't have like soap and water, running water to wash your hands with, you figure something must be wrong. Well, that was a, a Jewish thing before it was a worldwide thing. There's also protection militarily. I mean, God, God would guard over his people. And if they would follow him, if they would obey him, they'd experience his blessings. And we see this in the revivals of Israel. We see this in Nehemiah's time, how like they got a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And they're, they're manning the wall and building the wall and God is with them and his strength is with them and his power is with them. And we see it with Gideon. I mean, with a bunch of clay pots and some torches, the, they get the enemy to just kill themselves. You know? So you've got God's protection. You have David slaying Goliath and you have his mighty men and all these stories of God's protection on his people that didn't happen with all the nations, but happened with the Jewish people because they were called by God because they were given um, many blessings through this calling and through being set aside. So it's a, it's a great thing. It's a glorious thing. When I meet a, a Jewish person, whether they're a Christian or not, whether they're messianic, you know, whether they've received their Messiah or not, I'm excited to meet them because it's like there is much in every way. There's, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. Um, but then he gets into specifics. He goes, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The oracles of God. God gave his oracles or his teachings, his commands, the instructions. He gave the written word to them. They got to carry the living word of God. This may not seem like that big of a deal to, to people, but just imagine this. Like, what have you done in the past where you thought, man, I got to be there. I was there. I was part of that. That big thing that happened. Nowadays, people have really lame things that they are happy they were part of. Like, I was at Woodstock. I was there at Woodstock. And you're like, this is not something you should be bragging about. But... But there are things that, you know, in my own past, I kind of like, kind of smirked to myself, like I got to be part of that. That's nice. When I was a kid, they were filming Mighty Ducks 2. Did you know there was a sequel to that movie? And me and my family went over to the, the ice hockey rink for that, where the ducks would play, and we were extras in the film. And we sat there with a group of people amongst a large number of cardboard statues that they put up in the audience to make it look like there were more people there. And you sit there and then they'd be like, when the camera goes, we want you to cheer when you see the camera pointing at you and stuff like that. So we did. I got to be in the movie, I think. I can't tell by looking at the movie you watch. You're like, I can't. I've actually never seen the whole movie, but I did look for me. <laughs> and we couldn't find ourselves, um, unfortunately. But it's, there's a part of you that's like, hey, I got to be part of that. I, oh, I have this thing and it was used in this one thing and it's, that makes it special. The Jewish people carried God's word. They carried the word of God. Is this not an incredible blessing? Talk about getting to be part of something. Like what if you were the one that tran the first translated the Bible into, you name it, some, some language, some obscure language only known by this one group of people in this one country, and you were the one that translated it to them, and you got to hand it to them, be the one who handed it over. Here you go. Here's God's word so you can read it. I mean, there's something to be part of. And the Jewish people carried the word of God. There's, you can't overestimate the value of this. I mean, read Psalm 119. And as he talks, the longest psalm, just talking about the value and the wonder of God's word. But God also, he put his name upon them. So what Paul is saying is that even though the, the law isn't what saves you, 
That's not to say the law is bad or worthless or valueless. It just was never intended to save you. It was intended to show you that you can't be saved by your works. You need somebody to save you. So in verse 3, it says, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? This is sort of answering another scoffing type question. Will the unbelief of some Jews make it so that God's word is not going to come into its effect? Well, the Jews didn't all believe. It's a very common idea that we get nowadays. Well, if they didn't all believe, then it sort of failed, right? This is kind of a narcissistic way of seeing reality, isn't it? Like, maybe it's true, but I don't believe it, so it doesn't matter. Like, try this in any other area of life. Don't eat that, it's poisonous. Well, maybe that's true, but I don't believe that. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Goodbye. This isn't going to work. I know um, of a, an atheist who does <clears throat> who does a lot of debates, and he has a he has an atheist experience. Is this 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 web show that he puts on, and he he um, likes to interview Christians and stuff. But mostly, doesn't really interview them. He basically mocks and ridicules them for other atheists to laugh at. It's not really a, a journey of trying to discover truth as much as as it is trying to like twist the the sarcasm knife in, in the other person. Um, but Matt Dill- Dillahunty. He, that's his name, Matt Dillahunty. He, he was asked, like, what would it take for you to believe? Like, what would you need to believe? And he responds, and think about the logic of this. He says, well, I don't know what I would need to believe. But God knows if God exists. God knows what I need to believe. And he hasn't provided that. This is the, the perspective that says, if I, me, in my wisdom... And in my perfect objectivity of life that I possess, and I don't believe, well, then it must not be true. Just by sheer virtue of how awesome I am. There's all sorts of things that are true that you don't believe. And the truth itself has nothing to do with whether you believe it or not. His conclusion is, my unbelief proves that my unbelief is right. This is like a Christian saying, it's true because I said I believed it, so it must be true. There's the atheist version of this is where you go, well, God knows what I would need and God didn't provide it, so I don't believe and I'm justified in not believing because God hasn't provided what I know that I would need even though I don't know what I would need, but he would know. Okay, because you're obviously a rational person. Some people comfort themselves with their beliefs, um, but unbelief does not make reality different than it is. And that's the point of verse 3 here. What if, so what if some of the Jewish people didn't really believe and didn't receive the word properly? Does it change anything? No. It doesn't change anything. And so what if even nowadays I move into some area where there's a large group of unbelievers? Does this make Christianity less true? Of course not. It doesn't matter how many people believe or disbelieve something. It's just true. Verse 4, as we read on, he says, certainly not. He answers this question, certainly not. Now, in some uh, translations, it'll say God forbid in verse 4 and in a couple other places as well. Um, that's not what it says in the Greek. It's it just certainly not. It's like, be not, not be. No be. <laughs> Let it not happen. Let it not be. That is not the way it is. Uh, some translations put like, God forbid, or something like that. The reason why is because the translators just wanted to make it stronger, and maybe they, maybe that was something they would say is God forbid. It seems weird to me to insert the word God right there. But in verse 4, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. 
no matter how many Matt Dillahunties you have, it doesn't change anything. If every human being on earth denied that God existed, then it would be that God is true and every man's a liar. That's what it would mean. It, it wouldn't change anything. If a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Yes. Of course it does. What do you think sound depends on you hearing it? You think things doing things depend on you being there? If a star blows up a trillion miles away, did it did it really make an explosion? Yes. That's what happens, you know, life goes on with or without me. And so man lies, but God is true. And this is at the heart of the complaint. When people are like, well, if you're right, if Christianity is true, why don't more people believe it? Why don't more people believe it? If it was really true, more people would believe it. Really? Is that how truth works? People automatically believe what's true? Well, we know that that's not the case. God, not man, is the truthful one. And so, let God be true and yet every man a liar. I'm surprised at how much of Romans deals with modern atheistic complaints about God in the Bible. <laughs> I'm really sort of shocked at how much it applies to nowadays. You'd, you'd think that it was written for our time. Hmm. <laughs> because it was. Because the Bible was written for all times. So, um, let's read this again, verse 4. Certainly not, indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you, God, being spoken of, God may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. The idea here is that God is above reproach. God is, God's, you know, when you are going to compete God against man, man loses every time. And this is another area where atheists often will attack the Christian faith. Is they'll look at the Old Testament and they'll do these moral attacks on the Bible. They'll say, well, I think that that event in the Old Testament was immoral. Not realizing, like, how insane it is to think that you even can judge God. You can't judge God. Like God is the standard by which all others are judged. So you can't judge the standard. It's like holding, finding the king who first established the, 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 the 12-inch foot and holding a ruler up to his foot to see if his foot is a foot. When his foot is the foot. <laughs> That's the foot, man. If, this is, if the ruler is different, then you change the ruler because this was the original foot. In this sense, God is the original, the founding, the grounding, the foundation for morality, for all these things, for truth in general. So you can't, you can't judge God being wrong. It's not going to happen. As if the, the creature could look at the creator and say, no, nah, you blew it there. Um, just just the, the silliness of it. So he says, let God be true, but every man a liar. Even if every single human on earth rose up against God, said, God, no, we've invented a new way. You know, we've killed God. God is dead and we killed him. And like this kind of old, uh, old 1900s talk. Well, you're wrong. You're wrong. It just doesn't matter how many people agree with you. Then in verse 5, more complaints. He says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? Now, he's talking about something um, that is often overlooked as we talk about morality and we talk about righteousness and we talk about goodness. The, what this is based on, verses 5 and 6, is the idea that when God judges, when he judges people, it demonstrates his righteousness. So like the bad guy giving the good guy a chance to show his quality, so to speak. And so God's demonstrating his righteousness when he judges. 
he's showing his goodness. Just like if you went into a courtroom and you sat before the judge and you saw the cases that come in and you see they make right judgments, you're like, good judge, good judge. Demonstrating their rightness or in God's case, his righteousness. Um, so the complaint then becomes this. Hey, if my sin indirectly gives God a chance to show his righteousness, then maybe in my sin, I'm doing the Lord's work. Now, I've met people who've said this kind of thing. You ever heard that before? I've literally met people who were this darkened in their thinking. They really thought that by sinning, they were somehow doing God's work. Like, they're secretly on, on the payroll. <laughs> God's, God's, God's happy about this. Yes, sin, in a sense, accomplishes something indirectly when God judges the sinner. But Paul anticipates the objection. And that's why he says, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, meaning this is not a legit question. This is a stupid question. <laughs> and then certainly not. So he's anticipating that someone's going to say this when he talks about how all have sinned and fallen short and it reveals God's glory. Oh, they're going to complain in this sense. Now, if you witness and you teach and you're out sharing a lot, you'll be like Paul and you'll be in the middle of sharing and you'll already know the objections that are coming, they have coming at you. You'll be just like Paul. He anticipates the objections. He knows his audience. He knows the crowd. He knows at this point, oh, I better stop and deal with the scoffers. And so he kind of changes subjects a little bit. Um, so the objection, again, it seems to be, my sin is part of his plan and demonstrates his righteousness, so I've really done good. My sin isn't so bad. It might even be God's fault. <laughs> That's kind of what it comes down to. So is God unjust who inflicts wrath? This is what we call blame throwing. Well, it's what I call blame throwing. It's like flame throwing, but with blame. And you take out the blame thrower and you want to put your blame on everyone else. Paul has pushed us through Romans into a corner where we're supposed to see that we are wicked sinners who have judgment coming our way unless we have Christ. So that, that sinner finally admits it. They finally hear Paul. They're like, okay, so there's morality I know exists. I haven't obeyed it. I haven't done what's right. But you know what? I'm not so bad. Well, but compared to God, you are. Okay, fine, fine, compared to God. But you know what? My sin is kind of like in his plan, right? Like he planned on me doing it, right? So like that's on him, right? That's kind of the attitude. The idea is just kind of like what um, uh, what Adam said, not this Adam, but what Adam said to God when Eve and him ate of the fruit. And it's interesting what he says to God. He says, God, this woman that you gave me, she gave to me of the fruit and I ate. Now he has, talk about busting the blame thrower out. He has just blamed not only Eve, but God. It's the woman whom you gave me. Well, why, why would God have put me in this situation if he didn't want me to sin? Why would he make me this way? Why would he make her that way? He obviously wanted us to sin. That's the objection. So it's the blame thrower. In other words, fine, I'm a sinner, but it's God's fault. How does the Bible answer this scoff? It says, how will God judge the world? What you're doing is you're drawing it out to its logical conclusion. We're going to just take this scoff and we're going to go, let's apply your scoffing thing to, to the situation. So God can't judge anyone. He can't even judge Hitler. Because pretty much everybody agrees Hitler needs to be judged. Unless you're a moron. You know, like you agree Hitler needs to be judged. <laughs> he has to be judged, right? Oh, he can't even be judged because he was just doing the Lord's work. That's the application. And so once we realize how repulsive this is to us, the idea that... that what I'm trying to apply to me to get out of my sin, I have to apply to everybody, in which case 
there's no such thing as justice, in which case you have an unjust God, an unrighteous God. That's the logical conclusion. An unjust God, an unjust universe, and it's just backwards thinking. Um, this strategy is something that we should use in witnessing. When people say something silly, let them say it, let them hear themselves say it, and then try to draw it out to its logical conclusion. Try to carry it on out. Well, I'm doing God's work. Oh, so apparently everybody's doing God's work. So Satan's doing God's work. So Hitler. Right, so, so the guy that like stabbed your mom, like he's, he's doing God's work too. Oh, not that guy. Oh, and then they realize the, the inconsistency. They just want to make themselves look good, unfortunately. Um, looking bad is, is the prerequisite to getting Christ. <laughs> you gotta, you got to see how you really are. Verse 7. It says, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Now, in reading verses 7 and 8, I want to point out something. In the Bible, they didn't have the convention back then of parentheses and footnotes. And so when Paul wants to have a footnote as he's writing, or one of the other authors is, they just put the footnote in the text. So as you're reading it, you can sense the, the sidebar discussion. Oh, he's kind of coming off to the side a little bit. Then you can analyze that and then come back and read before it and after it so you can see the flow of thought. So he's continuing this, this, this silliness, right? If the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? Logical conclusion, sin is good. Hey, Mike, God works evil things together for good. So doesn't that make evil good? No, that's why we call it evil. That doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make evil good. If anything, the Bible maximizes the badness of sin, Romans especially. Sin is a lot worse than most of us give it credit for. I mean, sin's not all identical, but there aren't really little sins. There's no little sins. That's like the, that, that oxymoron, right? A minor heart attack. <laughs> didn't feel minor at the time. <laughs> Maybe minor compared to something else, but it's not minor. It's all a big deal. Sin is all quite a big deal before God. Um, and so what, what he's doing is he's, again, he's just, he's letting them voice their silliness and then kind of throwing it back in their faces, logically speaking. This is what happens, for instance, um, bringing these to their logical conclusion. When an atheist attacks the Old Testament, like I mentioned earlier, saying that the Bible's morally flawed, the Bible's morally flawed. There's a problem with this thinking. If I'm an atheist, and I think that the Bible's morally flawed, am I not believing that morals are real, and that morality is real, and that I can use morals to judge things because they're objectively true? But yet the only grounding, the only real accounting for objective morality would be God. So I'm trying to say that this isn't God based on an assumption that requires God. So here we are. I'm, I'm, I'm hacking down the tree, but I'm in the treehouse. It doesn't make any sense. So you, you draw out that logical conclusion. You, you, you kind of try to expose. So based on what do you judge that the Bible's morally a problem here? And then you, you try to bring them to that point where they realize that you're, you're, in your worldview, there are no real morals. You don't judge anything. You just like things and don't like things. <laughs> There's no real right and wrong. Um, so he says in verse 8, the logical conclusion of this is, let us do evil that good may come. And then he talks about this fact, as they're slanderously reported and some affirm that they say their condemnation is just. 
there are slanderous reports about Paul and uh, distortions of what he's doing, what we call a straw man, where you, you, you don't represent him accurately. You build a fake version of him that you can beat up. Oh, it's a straw man. It can't defend itself. I'll just, I'll just make it look as silly as possible and beat it up. That happens a lot. We get slanders like this today. They talk about, well, you're saved by grace, so you think that like a guy can be a horrible, horrible person, evil person, abuser, you know, thief, murderer, and then at the last five seconds of his life, he can just say a quick prayer, and then he goes to heaven. And then we go, well, that's kind of a straw man version of salvation, isn't it? Because salvation involves a total turn of the guy to Christ. It involves a real transformation from the inside out. The guy's not even the same anymore. He's been redeemed. He's been reformed by Christ. He becomes born again. So he's the new guy. He's not just the same guy that said a prayer. If he really, truly said this prayer, if he really, truly came to Christ, he's been transformed. So then I go, well, I believe if he's born again, yeah, he's going to be saved. And that's good news. But don't think that heaven is full of a bunch of insincere people who uttered a five-second prayer right before they died. No, there's a genuineness to it. People say, oh, you believe the Bible? So you think we should stone gays, right? Shake my head. You know, like, really? You really think this is, this is representing Christianity? And so we keep defending things that we don't even believe. I don't believe that. Can you please stop building straw men? How would you ask me what I believe instead of you telling me your weird, quirky version of Christianity that isn't even what we believe? It, ultimately, it's, they're just clueless. Or all people say, so you believe in, in the great sky daddy. This is a common atheistic statement I see online. You believe in the great sky daddy as a Christian. In the beginning, the sky daddy? Is that what it says? Why? Who called? Oh, dear sky daddy. Like nobody prays like that. Why? Because we don't think, we think that's silly sounding. Because we don't really believe that. But the scoffers will often have to misrepresent Christians in order to defeat the things that they believe. So, they're slanderously reported. We are slanderously reported. And the response to scoffers here in the Bible is, at the end of verse 8, their condemnation is just. Proverbs does not have good things to say about scoffers. It says in Proverbs 19.29, judgments are prepared for scoffers and beatings for the back of fools. In 2 Peter 3.3, it says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. They're selfish desires, hypocritical things. They're scoffers. Now, this doesn't mean we should never answer a scoffer. Sometimes you answer them, sometimes you don't. It just depends. May God give you wisdom to know what to do in the moment. Proverbs makes it clear that it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous thing. Sometimes you speak and sometimes you hold your tongue and may God give us the wisdom to know which, when to do what. But the sad thing is, is their condemnation is just. When somebody scoffs and they're willing to misrepresent intentionally, misrepresent Christianity, they don't care what we really believe. They just want to attack and beat up and mock and ridicule and scoff. Their condemnation is just. And that's actually a very sad thing. So the big picture, to zoom out a little bit from the details we've just gotten, the big picture is this. The guilt of sin is on man, not God. All this scoffing was about putting the guilt on God for the things that man does that, are, that make him guilty. To avoid the prideful arrogance of blaming God for man's guilt. That's the point of this passage. The mental gymnastics that people go through to keep from admitting they're wrong. You know, because you do it too. 
<laughs> I've certainly done it. And then you're like, oh, eh, and you and you've got your justifications, but you sort of feel like you don't feel okay, you don't feel right about it, you know? And so it bothers you and it bothers you. And then you go and you make the mistake of praying about it. And then you know you're wrong. Because right? <laughs> now you go to the Lord and it becomes very clear. Or you come to church and the worship begins. And as soon as you start worshiping, you just you know it. You just It's clear, man. Worship just clears my head, spiritually speaking. And I'll just be like, oh, I was just so wrong. I don't know what I was thinking. We need to remember this. The humility of, of, of a wrong person coming to God saying, God, I was wrong. That is exactly what he's looking for is for us just to come in our state and say, look, this is just who I really am, Lord. I blew it. I'm sorry. I, I won't offer excuses. I'm not blame, blaming my mom and dad. I'm not blaming you. I'm not blaming whatever. I blew it here. I need your grace and mercy. And he goes, now you get it. The contrite heart, the broken heart, that I will not despise. I don't want your sacrifice and offering. I want you to come just humbly to me and let me offer for you. I just want you humble. That's what this is getting at. James 4.9 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the goal, is to, to reach that humility, that sort of brokenness before God. Then in verse 9, he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So the Jew was blessed, but not necessarily better. Right? They were blessed because they were given God's word, God's promises, chosen as God's people. But the quality of individual was the same around the world. A Jewish individual is not a better person than a Gentile individual. They were just given these oracles of God. In fact, he picked them because they were just like everybody else. That's the whole point. If he'd picked a different group of people, it would have ended the same way. <laughs> we, we all would have fallen in the same ways. And so his point is, we're not better. No, no. Jew, Gentile, we've charged, and this is, this is such a key thing, key verse, verse 9, for understanding chapters 2 and 3. For we've previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. They're all under sin. They are all under sin. Verse 10, he says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And there's going to be a litany of different Old Testament verses quoted here. There's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's a quote from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. Then he goes and quotes Psalm 5, 9. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they've practiced deceit. Then he quotes Psalm 140, verse 3. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's Psalm 10, 7. And then their feet are swift to shed blood. That was Proverbs 1, 16. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. That's Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, verse 1. Paul, what he's doing here is he's drawing together quotes from various places in the Old Testament. And my opinion is that it's kind of neat how he does this. Because he draws together quotes that when you pull them, when you look at them individually in their contexts, sometimes they're talking about Gentiles. Sometimes they're talking about the enemies of Israel. Sometimes they're talking about uncommitted Jewish people. And other times they're just talking about all the Jewish people. This parallels what he did in chapters 1, 2, and 3, where he threw a wide net saying, we have charged previously, right, that both Jews and Greeks all are under sin. And now he quotes from a variety of Old Testament passages to say, and this is what the Bible has been telling you all along. Jew, Gentile, 
all of us, we all fail, we all fall short. It's condemnation to man from the issues of conscience, from the failing of the law, and it's consistent with the teaching of the Old Testament. I love this. Paul's a Bible teacher. He's in the Bible teaching the Bible is what he's doing. It's kind of exciting. And so he quotes a variety of these Old Testament passages to, to say, do you see the thread running through? And this is something that happens. At first you study the Bible and you're, you're in the verse and you're, you're reading that verse and then you're, you're expanding out to the passage. I want to understand the whole passage, even the chapter, you know, maybe even the whole book. And then you start to understand books. And then you start to see threads and themes that go through the books of the scriptures. And Paul, he's at this place, so he's weaving all these different things together. He's just a masterful, uh, spirit-led teacher. Um, and, I'm, and I'm glad because I could just quote him instead of me being masterful and spirit-led. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hopefully I can be spirit-led. Um, so is, here's my question as I read Romans 3. Is this saying that nobody ever does anything good? Or is it saying that nobody is good? I think it's saying nobody is good. Because the Bible clearly indicates in lots of places that there's people who do good things. You know, what, what Job, was a, he was a righteous man, the scripture says. Of course, the word righteous there, he, he, he exposes his own sinfulness and his failings and stuff throughout the book. So it didn't mean sinless in that sense. But no one is good in that sense of being sinless. No one is reaching the standard of God. We all fail, whether it's the, the poison of asps on my mouth, the, the, the full of cursing and bitterness, or is it my feet are swift to shed blood? Or did, what is it that I do wrong? Well, there's something there. You know, my closet is full. <laughs> and the Lord knows. And so that's the point. It's just saying that mankind fails. There is a real standard of good, um, and we fail it. And we even fail our lower standards, right? Just my conscience, my own awareness of right and wrong. But then when God comes in with the law and reveals an even higher standard than I was fully aware of, I see how much I fall short. Verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, as opposed to those who are not. Um, th this was not so much commentary in the Gentiles as the Jews. It's directed towards the Jews. The law says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. See, the Jewish person could have read the Bible, the, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, and they could have said, boy, man, look at how terrible the rest of the world is. I mean, look at the standard. Look how bad they are. But maybe they didn't read it and apply it to their own hearts and lives. And that's the danger we face today that we would read the word of God and apply it to us before applying it to our neighbor or our friend or our spouse or other people at our fellowship or you name it, family, anybody. I got to apply it here first. I really desperately need to. And probably one of the people that's at the biggest risk of this is me. I teach the word. I get up. My whole point is I have to read it so I can understand it so I can explain it to somebody else. But I better deal with it here first. I got to apply it to me. And that seems to be the failing. Every mouth is stopped. So is your mouth stopped? Are you still justifying, blaming, and minimizing? These are the three terms we like to use. Justifying is when I, I say, but I had good excuses for what I did. It was the right thing, even though it may have looked bad. You know, Minimizing, that's when I, uh, I act like what I did really wasn't that bad. I know I blew it, but you know, hey, uh, you know, wouldn't be the person I am today if I hadn't done all that horrible stuff before. <laughs> that kind of thing. Or blaming. Well, you don't know how I was raised. You don't know what I went through. You don't know what other factors were involved in my life. And, and the Lord's just like, the whole world's guilty. Just admit it. Just get over it. Get over your pride. Then in verse 20, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, 
No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. I think the law is like that white glove. It's like the white glove that someone wears when they walk into the room and they're going to see how dirty it really is. And they pull on the white glove and they get out that finger. And they go on the windowsill or underneath the ledge. And then they show you their finger and they're like, yeah! And you're thinking like, of course, no one's going to pass the white glove test. Of course you're going to find dirt. Well, this is the law. Like that white glove isn't meant to clean anything. It's just meant to show you the dirt. And the law was meant to show them the dirt, to show me my sin. That's the purpose of the law. And we should still use it this way nowadays. This is the proper use of the law. This is why I love Ray Comfort's ministry, Living Waters, and how they go out and they preach the law. Why? Because they're trying to use that white glove to be like, yep, see, you need Jesus too. (laughs) See, you need the Savior. You need the Lord. Use the law. You should use the law too. And you, but you can use it in two ways. One is you can use the written word of the law, like the Ten Commandments, this sort of thing. But you can also use the conscience of man because we all know we're sinners. Unless we're incredibly deceived. So you can utilize the conscience of man, the things they're already aware of that are right and wrong. Just as Paul does in the first chapter of Romans, in the second chapter of Romans, and the third. Um, So now they can see the law for what it is. Now they can see that they're desperate and helpless and they need Jesus so, so bad. It's a good place to stop. (laughs) Which we are going to stop for tonight. We're going to pick up on verse 21 um, uh, next week. But my whole point here has been um, that we should should, apply the scriptures to ourselves. We should let it humble us. So let's drive that point home. Um, And let me ask you a question just to think about. How are you at admitting you're wrong? How are you at admitting you're wrong? Just think about it. What about when you're wrong about facts? Do you fight it? When you find out you're wrong, like you know you're factually wrong, do you still fight it? Do you try to spin reality so that you don't have to admit it? Or do you joke about it instead of just going, yeah, you're right, I was wrong. But how about when it's more personal? What about when you are morally wrong? When what you did was just wrong? That does not feel good. But how we respond, whether we blame others or take the blame for ourselves and come for God's grace. But you can't really come for God's grace until you're willing to shoulder the burden of your own failings. And then God has so much grace, an ocean of grace, to separate you from your sin as far as the east is from the west. But you, me, we've just got to be like, Lord, no more defenses. No more excuses, no blaming, no minimizing, no justifying, just confession. I blew it. I'm sorry. I need the grace of Christ. And you will sense the grace and the forgiveness upon your soul and in your heart of God's love. And then you'll have to do it again the next day and the next day and the next day. Because we have to constantly come. And this should make us as Christians a humble people. And humility is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing when you can walk in it, not, not for the sake of showing anybody, but just to be, just being that, you know. So let's, uh, let's take it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and, and we, um, we're, not, uh, we're not Jesus. We are us. And our failings, our flaws, our sin, it is not anyone else's fault.
It's completely on us, Lord, and we admit it. We confess it. And we say, God, soften our conscience to know right from wrong. Soften our hearts to be receptive to the truth of your word. And forgive us for our sins just by the mercy of Christ. We offer nothing, but we ask for everything, God, by your mercy and your grace. And let us be that, that people who's truly, genuinely humble, who walks in the, uh, in the awareness of the love that God has poured out upon us, Lord, who, who looks at the world and realizes that we are sinners saved by grace and we want them to be too, to be saved. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would keep us from elitism, keep us from arrogance or from, from pride, from being like that kid who thinks because his parents are rich, he must be really a great kid. Lord, we, because we're forgiven and because of your wealth, Lord, we don't want to think that it, it's about us. It's all about Jesus. And may we learn the lesson as we keep going through Romans and we move on to talk about other subjects, may we learn the lesson that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we're justified freely by the grace of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are my